I'm Katrina Strickland, editor of Good Weekend, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. Every week you can download new episodes in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imaginations of Australians right now. This week we speak with Louise Adler, a woman long seeped in the worlds of books and ideas. A one-time journalist, arts editor and deputy director of the Victorian College of the Arts, Louise ran Melbourne University Publishing for 15 years and was then publisher at large at Hachette before being tapped to become director of the Adelaide Writers Week last year. Her first event in Adelaide runs from March 4 to 9 this year and it's my pleasure to talk to Louise, a past president of the Australian Publishers Association, amongst other things, about all things books, ideas and literary festivals today. Welcome, Louise. Thank you so much. Let's start with a few quick-fire questions about the state of publishing. I get a lot of books across my desk every week. Sometimes it seems like if there's anything happening in the world, someone will have written a book about it. Are there too many books published, and if so, why? I don't know that I could ever, as a publisher, think that there are too many books in the world. What I find heartbreaking is that there are a lot of good books published that never find the readership or the audience that they deserve. And I think for writers and their publishers, that's really painful. In a way, it's highly commercial business. Obviously, it's a business, so it's commercial. But it's also a personal endeavour. It's a kind of passion. You don't write books if you don't feel completely committed to the project. And for publishers, you have to back every book with all of your heart and soul. And I know because I've worked in publishing a long time how passionate and committed publishers are. So when they sell modestly, you feel that your work has been, you know, what's it been for? So that's, I think, the kind of at the heart of it. And that's what breaks my heart when I see them all come in and you, you look at how many there are and how much publicity you can give to like a tiny percentage of them. And I do wonder what happens to the rest of them. Do they find a 1,000 readers? Do they find 5,000 readers? Because as you say, we all know what authors go through to get a book out the door and it is normally one of the biggest things in their life unless there are really, you know, regular, you know, someone who does 20 books. But what's your kind of average book audience, would you say? Uh, in Australia, very small. We used to say that you'd sell 2,000 copies of a book here to 20,000 in the US. Um, here we have the problem of geography and we have the problem of population. And then you have the reading habits of Australians or, you know, people basically, you know, readers around the world. There's lots of competition for our leisure time now. So there's lots of factors that go into what limits um, the reach or the commercial success of a particular book. The last time I really delved into the figures, so an ISBN is issued for every book in every edition, in every format. So a new ISBN. So let's say the 68,500 that were issued in Australia. I think the last time I looked at the figures was 2020. Of that 68,500, some 67,500 sold less than 5,000 copies. I think there were five titles that sold over 100,000 copies, maybe another 10 that sold over 50,000, and so it goes down. It's such a sort of grim picture. And and then, you know, we've had recent surveys um, post-COVID, if you like, or the yeah, 20, I think the last survey was done in of the figures in 2021. I think it's something like 75% of people said in Australia that they've only read one book in the last year. 
you know, so reading habits have changed. Um, uh, the kind of um, interest, the um, appetite. Um, I think the pandemic has been un- an unusual period, but you're finding that um, most books are selling, that certainly most books are selling less than 5,000 copies. So the pandemic didn't help in, in the fact that we were all locked locked at home and we weren't reading books what we were watching netflix we're watching netflix streaming services netflix all the all the streaming services but um you saw a sharp increase in fiction sales of fiction during covid and a decline in non-fiction it was very interesting that people wanted the escape we wanted to travel with our in our minds you know we may be lying on our lounge you know in our, on, a, yeah. on, a, you know, on a sofa in the lounge room but we wanted to imagine different worlds so there was the people who were publishing the publishers who decided to publish during the pandemic actually did very well with fiction. And that seems a change, would you say? I feel like in the last decade or so, non-fiction has been the thing that's really come to the fore, or is that just my world? I think we normally say that you know, 40, of the total books that are sold in Australia, 44%, about 44% are non-fiction, 29% are fiction, and maybe 25% are children's, whether they add up to 100%, I don't know. I yeah. remember <laughs> rough something figures, rough, rough, figures. rough figures, rough figures. Um, but um, I think when you think about nonfiction, I think you might be thinking about serious nonfiction. And I'm not saying that cookbooks or memoirs by celebrities aren't serious books, but they're co- very commercial and mass market. So I think there, there are differences there in what constitutes nonfiction and why nonfiction sells. And so where is the growth at the moment? What kind of book is kind of what everyone in publishing is looking at at the moment or thinking that's that's what I need one of? There seem to be a plethora of um, misery memoirs, <laughs> um, often about bad mothers, and the novels are often about bad mothers. Very rarely, it seems to me that fathers get, mm. you know, get get done. Um, thankfully, we're over the gone girl genre, but I think we are into the sad girl period. You know, we've got a lot of sad girl stories happening at the moment. You know, and um, some people call, you know, misery memoirs, the sad girl novels. Um, so, and I think it's reactive. So once. That book, the novel about the Gone Girl, was was um, launched. Then you had a succession of other mm. novels in the same genre. Gone girls, girls on trains, girls on buses. A girl went missing. A girl came back. Whatever, whatever. But you feel, I think it's quite a reactive business publishing. So people follow trends. And I meet other publishers and we say, can we get over the sad girl business? Isn't that someone who's happy? And so looking at the publishing business, it's such an interesting industry in the sense that as you say there's like a tiny percentage of books that will shoot the lights out the rest of them will in Australia sell less than 5,000 copies how does that work as a business then so your one big hit is just subsidizing everything else is that more or less or or do you make it so that it kind of works at 2,000 copies. No, I think I think um, no, books don't, given the advances that you need to pay, even when they're very small and they're meant, and I've got some figures if you're interested on the sort of, you know, what authors are making because it's tragic at that end, mm. uh, but I don't think you cover your costs when you pr- your print run or you sell through is 2,000 copies. Um, so I th- the, the, the ratio always used to be 10% of the list subsidises the other 90%, you yeah. know, and um, I think that's probably even less now. But, you know, you have um, at one end you have Scott Pape, Who's mm. barefoot, barefoot investor for kids? I think sold one hundred and eighty-five thousand copies in a week. Mm. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think of that. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have very fine, important literary novels that can barely 
get to 2,000 copies. So it's such a spread. That are often winning awards too. And winning awards. And I think it's interesting when you really people, um, we take cognizance of we, we, we adore it when our authors win awards, but actually often they do not translate into sales. Mm. And I think that it's because the industry does not back those books in the way, for example, the Booker Prize, because I've made this argument again and again here, that we need to, and whether it's the Prime Minister's Literary Awards or it's the Miles Franklin or whatever the book awards are, we need to back, the industry needs to back those awards. The long list for the booker is heavily promoted. Booksellers get behind it. The publishers get behind it. And then the short list is promoted heavily. And there's lots and lots of discussion. I remember often I've been in the UK when and the lead up to the announcement of the Booker Prize and authors who are on the short list will be, uh, there'll be a grab of two minutes at the end of the news with them talking about their book. I mean, there's an enormous amount of interest. And that support from the entire industry ensures that those books really sell as does the winner as as does the winner of the booker prize year after year and that's on the industry as a whole to galvanize and behind these awards because that can be transform it's certainly transformational for the author um, but it really brings a, a book that might have sold modestly often has sold modestly to public attention but do you feel like the Australian industry doesn't do that behind the Miles Franklin or the Stella or the Prime Minister's I think as a whole, prizes. collectively, we aren't and um, we don't have that kind of support across – and everyone's committed to it and we love it when our authors win these awards, but it needs a whole-of-industry approach. And what other things would you like changed if you could wave your magic wand? I know you're a former head of the Publishers Association. What – what are the things that you have always thought like this needs to change to either get more people reading or to get authors better remunerated or to just make the whole thing work better? Mm. It really requires, you know, it's the authors that are really, this is not, you know, we always talk about what's the average um, author's annual income. I think it's something like $13,000 a year. That's not a way to support. That's not support. So how would we do this? Other countries, I think Ireland has as as, as a um, has a policy of supporting writers to write. I mean, they're paid to write, to, you know, to hone their craft. And we know that, you know, it takes two or three books for a book often an author to become successful. So who who bankrolls that? Who supports that? Who's, who underwrites that? You know, and Christos Cholkis did not arrive fully formed at the slap. And it took, you know, support and working, honing his craft with the support of excellent editors and publishers and, and you know, colleagues. And that takes time. So too with Richard Flanagan. That takes time, you know. So I think it's really important. And I've, I just think it's breathtaking. The average earnings of literary fiction writers in the last financial year was 14500 Their average average advance was $3,000, right? And poets... They're t- terrible, and their average incomes were five was five and a half thousand dollars. And creative nonfiction writers earned nine thousand the last financial year. That's not a, that's not you know. No. But who's going to pay? Who who is going to fund them? Like if you can make it work, where does that money come from? And so I firmly believe in the st- in state intervention. I have trust in the government of the day. We're awaiting a cultural policy, a new cultural policy, to be announced by the Minister for the Arts, Tony Burke on the 30th of January. We're awaiting that announcement and I hope there's more support for writers because as it stands, even if you look at the Australia Council pie where most writers go and apply for grants to write their books and the piece of the pie that literature gets is incredibly small. 
is not commensurate with the, the revenue that's generated by the industry. It's not commensurate. So how are writers supported to write? That's the crucial. So if I could change one thing, that would be it. Yeah. Great. Um, And you've moved now, obviously, from publishing. You ran Melbourne University Publishing, then you're a publisher at large at Hachette, now into um, festivals, Adelaide Writers Week. It seems to me that there's a writers festival in almost every state and capital city, but also in the smaller regional towns. I know Sorrento just started one recently. Is that all – I mean, that's obviously from people who love books and want to promote them – is that all just good for books? Is there a downside at all these festivals or is it all just upside? And and what's behind it? If you're saying that we're not reading as much, we're watching Netflix, and yet at the same time these festivals seem to be proliferating. Yes. It's interesting. It is a bit of a – it is a sort of a contradiction in a way because the appetite among um, audiences um, to engage with writers, to see their favourite writers in person, to hear them reading their work – has grown. It hasn't abated. It hasn't diminished. It hasn't declined. As you say, there's a festival in every city, in every regional, in every small town, and there's a proliferation of book clubs. You can see that people at a certain stage in life, if they, they might have always been you know devoted readers, um, or they've returned to reading. And I think that's really interesting. It's all upside for readers um, and for authors, um, you talk about how authors and um, how do they survive and what a publishers need from authors. The author is the key to selling a book. And the harder the author works, the better the result, really, in terms of commercial um, uh, the commercial success of a title. Uh, we need authors to have, I mean, I find, it, I find it excruciating, but the term would be platforms. We need authors who are willing to promote themselves. Not all authors are comfortable doing it. Not all authors are sort of are good at it. You know, some of them are shy and reserved and, you know, they should be allowed to be. But um, in order to sell the book, the only thing that really matters is the author out there. Going to every library, every book club, every invitation that's issued, push, 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 and it's the author that matters. It's not the publisher. The publisher is irrelevant in the end. It's the author's connection to the readers that really matters. So re- literary festivals are a very intimate way to be with your audience. You know, I watched at the Adelaide Writers Week in 2022, I watched Trent Dalton and um, Okay, he was. Um, there must have been three or four thousand people in the audience. They were all besotted with Trent Dalton. Yes. I don't think. I think if he just sat there and was silent, it would have. It would have resulted in a very good sales from the book tent. But he was connecting with his audience. They will never forget that experience. It's the real life experience, you know, engagement with the writer. And there's also the meeting of the new, the writer you didn't know, the encounter that you with a writer whose work you didn't know. I always remember going to Melbourne Writers Week and I was a small, grey-haired, petite, mature-aged lady on stage. Her name was Carol Shields. I'd never read any of her work and she talked about a novel she'd written called The Stone Diaries. And I was sort of t- somehow a touch, I con- connected with it. And I went out to the bookshop at both, and in, it was at the Malt House and I went out t- and bought all of the books that were there, all of her oeuvre, if you like, and r- devoured them. I thought she was one. It was so great to meet a writer I had not heard of. And her voice you know, lingered in my mind as I was reading her work. What a pleasure. So for authors, you would say no bookshop, no book festival is too small. Get up there. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I know are... it's, I cannot believe how upsetting it must be when you, you know, you prepare an author prepares and comes and there's 12 people sitting in a bookshop. It must be incredibly difficult, but 
it is worth doing. Well, but you also have that connection, I remember, as you say, which is very enjoyable. If someone's bothered to read your book, even if there's only 12, that's going to resonate because you'll have an important conversation. I remember when Lee Swinson from Mao's Last Answer start, wrote that book and I remember he and his wife were talking about how they didn't know if anyone would read it and he started off doing all these little ballet groups around the country and look how that built. I mean, that became one of the most mm. – and I always remember he put the real legwork in at the beginning when it was no way going to be a surefire success in getting out there and making sure that the word of mouth mm. – the word of mouth is very important. Yeah. And you, you remember Mao's Last Dance. I always think of The Hair with Amber Eyes by Edmund Duval. Who'd heard of Edmund Duval, a Japanese ceramicist living in London, devoted to Japanese culture but also a deeply European sensibility? And one person talked to another about that book and it just took off. Yeah. It's so interesting. The converse, though, is you can have um, an enormous audience and – not actually deliver book sales. I've never forgotten that we had Malcolm Fraser um, talk about his um, – it was his memoirs, I believe, his memoirs that he'd co-written with Margaret Simons. And we had this big event in Melbourne. Over 600 people came. We were very excited. This was at MUP. And we brought boxes and boxes of books thinking we're going to sell lots and lots of copies. This will be fantastic. It'll be signing until midnight. We sold 12 copies. Wow. So sometimes the engagement with the author is great, but I feel I walk away the audience and think, don't have to buy the book, yeah. which is so annoying for the I've publisher. I've heard everything that I need to hear. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and is that often the case? Do you think that people come to a festival in lieu of reading the book? Sure. I mean, I have not read the book. Often you mm. not, have not read a book and you might encounter an author that sends, as Carol Shields did to me, sends me to the book tent. But there's also the pleasure of lining up and getting your book signed, isn't there? People yeah. seem to love that. So tell us about programming a festival, Adelaide Writers Week. It's all free, which is different to some festivals where they have ticketed, you know, prices. How do you even start that? Oh, it's such a pleasure. <laughs> I have, have to admit this is the best job in the world. Well, because it's what I love to do, which is, you know, matching ideas and books and people. And that was my favourite thing in publishing. So it feels like a lovely continuation of that. Um, so that's fun. And the world. I mean, Adelaide Writers Week has always been it's extraordinary history, over 60 years. It's always been international in focus. So you have the world to choose from. So, you know, you're looking at who's publishing what and how can you can you entice them to make the trek to Adelaide or to Australia. And post-COVID, I think people are more interested in travelling. And so the world's, you know, really the world is one's oyster. And I think it's really interesting to try to curate a program that has a mix um, fiction and non-fiction, um, s- political ideas, genre discussions, thematic discussions. You know, I've, I've, I've um, got a, a session with some of the best bi- literary biographers in the country, Hermione Lee, and, um, for, you know, she's the doyen of literary biography. She's just finished a biography of Stoppard and she's working on another one at the moment um, with, with Australian um, biographers like Brid- uh, Bernadette Brennan. Um, the, discu- the Helen Garner. And the Gillian Mears, that's mm. right. Um, and a couple... 
like what does a literary life look like? How do you write a literary life? Well, I think that's very interesting. There's um, discussions about, you know, crises in the world, international crises, whether we're talking about the occupation, Palestinian, um, you know, um, responses to the occupation, or we're talking about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. There are issues of the day, topical issues, sexual politics, ever, the, you know, always a subject these days. And um, so those themes are not difficult to pull together, but you're trying to um, bring together interesting people with a variety of views in civil discussion, you know, and I think, you know, civility is the order of the day. Adelaide is a very civilised city, you know, I don't think they go in for incivility, um, but passionate discussion, courageous discussion, I think is really important about ideas that we may not enjoy. You know, I don't think it's about gathering together people who all agree with one another. So that's part of the sort of principles or the framework in which I've thought about, um, you know, curating a program. Not con- controversy for the sake of it, but kind of a deep engagement and t- and arg- argument and debate about ideas that are complicated and hard. But you wouldn't mind a bit of fireworks on stage? I'm not sure that I, I love the fireworks. You know, when one is an audience member and you watch um, discomfort, it's not always... No, Pleasant? actually, that's true, yeah. You know, I always remember um, Thea Astley, who I loved and published briefly, and Rosemary Sorensen was interviewing her, and Thea was having one of her contrary days, and she just wouldn't play ball. Mm. It wasn't – I felt no. for Rosemary, and it mm. wasn't pleasant to watch. Yeah, so I think civility, c- civil discussion is really important. And are you bringing everyone who's international to – to Adelaide, Adelaide. Uh, or any video? Uh, some, uh, probably, you know, the, I think there's about 45 international guests. Maybe eight of them are streaming, mainly because the time, their pressures, the publication pressures, you know, the publishing pressures that they're under elsewhere make it impossible. And um, I think people have got accustomed to um, watching screens, but the in-person encounter is always preferable. Yes, of course. And then how do you, how do you demographically kind of look at it? Are you... Do you have some sessions that have just very clearly pitched at, you know, your 20-somethings or I would imagine most of the Writers' Festival would be more your kind of middle age and, and up? Is that incorrect? Yeah, I think so. Well, main, I think mainly because, the you know, young the, the next generation, the younger generation are either studying or working, hopefully, so their time during the days and the Writers' Festival, Adelaide Writers' Festival, runs from 9.30am till 6pm every day for six days. Mm. Hard for them to come. But there are some like Sloane Crossley who I think will appeal to the younger generation. I've got a session with Sloane and a number of other people, Diana Reid, who you'll know, one of our great successes here in Australia, and Laura Kipnis, who's a very interesting Australian American writer, to um, it's the title of the of the session is a modern guide to horizontal folk dancing. So you know we're talking sexual politics, we're talking about what cons- con- constitutes consent, what is sexual relations, intimate relations, what do they look like in the twenty first century after p- the pandemic. So there, I think there are some sessions that will really, you know, um, re- people will respond to. Peter Singer, who's that renowned ethics philosopher um, who writes about ethics, he'll be there and students really engage with Peter Singer and his ideas about what constitutes a just and ethical society and how to live a decent life and be a good human being. So I think there are sessions there that will apply, will uh, you know, appeal to the younger generation. And what's the biggest thing that you're really thrilled to have got, either an author or a session, a combination of authors? What's the thing that you really think 
Gee, I'm glad I nailed that. Yeah. So, well, I like it. I've, there, are, there are beautiful novelists that I want Australian audience, the Australian audience to meet. I want them to meet Louise Kennedy, who's an Irish writer who wrote a beautiful novel called Trespassers, and she just won the Irish Times Book of the Year Award. And I want, them, I want people to meet Alison MacLeod, who wrote this fabulous book about D.H. Lawrence's censorship of Lady Chatterley's lover and Jacqueline Kennedy. I don't think people in Australia know their work. I really want them to meet these two novelists and I really want people to read their work. And at the other end, I've got the, I think, the two greatest living um, British playwrights um, in the festival. We've got Tom Stoppard and there'll be a celebration of his life and work with an element of it, which is a pre-recorded conversation um, between Glyn Davis, um, Sir Tom Stoppard and Dame Hermione Lee and a live conversation with um, Susie Miller, who wrote Prima Facie, and um, Simon Phillips, who's one of the great theatre directors, uh, uh, international and national theatre directors of our time, and Tom Stoppard. So Tom Stoppard will be live. So that's one ticketed, that's one of only two ticketed events. The other is David Hare. So David Hare is coming to Adelaide, and he hasn't been in a very, very long time, and he will, he says he's reading his monologue, Beat the Devil, which is about um, COVID, having, getting COVID. I say he's performing his monologue, and he will then be in conversation with Don Watson, who I call our chief ironist, you know. So I think they're two great, you know, the great men of British theatre talking about writing. So, Two ends of the spectrum, two wonderful novelists, um, Louise Kennedy and Alison MacLeod, and at the other end, the two greats of British playwriting today, theatre today. And how important is it these days to have exclusivity? I know the Perth comes before you, is that yes, right? Yes, But then you've got a couple of months before Sydney and Correct. Um, Melbourne. Do you need exclusivity to bring in people from other states or is that less important these days? I think, well... Uh, the good fortune of Adelaide Writers Week is we're part of Adelaide Festival. So for Adelaide March is festival. It's mm. month the festival month in Adelaide. So there's Adelaide Festival for three weeks. There's Writers Week for a week of that. Those three weeks. There's Wome Adelaide. There's the French. I mean, it's a great time. So Adelaide, everyone's there anyway. Everyone's there anyway, and people do come in from interstate to the, to our festival uh, to Writers Week and to the festival, and so they should. Beautiful program this you know year That's and true. international in focus. So the best of the international arts. What's happening in the arts in, internationally is coming to Adelaide. Yeah. You've published books by, I guess you would, you would have to say some controversial books. You did Louise Milligan's book on George Pell. You did Tony Abbott's Battle Lines. You've done Anthony Lowenstein's books on um, Israel and Palestine. Are publishers as risky as they used to be, do you think, or, or do you think that they've become less so? Um, I think publishers are risk averse. The consequences, you know, the legal, con the litigious, um, you know, um, litigious minor characters you discover, you know, that someone who was, you know, really of no consequence in a book um, takes takes exception, and you can be mired in court legal wrangling for months and months and years and years in really time that this resource you know, wastes of resource. Um, so I think people, publishers are increasingly risk averse because consequences can be, you know, the commercial consequences are hefty, you know. And so when you choose to back a book, you know, and an author and their evidence, um, you've got to really have conviction. So there's a lot of checking. There's a lot of le legaling of books now. I think people are very careful. But the writers that I've worked with that have been um, in 
writing on really controversial subjects or legally problematic subjects, like Louise Milligan or Michael Warner um, with the AFL book, there um, we have been really um, inspired and um, encouraged by their meticulous um, research. And that's where you have comfort, when the author is meticulous and knows their subject back the front and has the evidence. So there, the, I mean, I think that's where you can manage the risks well by having authors that you rely on and are reliable in terms of having the evidence. And so choose your author carefully. Choose your authors carefully. And mm-hmm. that said, it's always a tie kicker that you never expect it yeah. who comes out from nowhere, from the weeds and says, I've got a claim, mm. you know, and how long that takes to fight those. You know. Because fact-checking is interesting. When you look at the scandals in book publishing in the last couple of decades, they have often been in books that your average reader would go, how did no one fact-check that? I mean, even something out of Prince Harry's book, you know, the ghostwriter got a million dollars and the book's obviously going to sell millions. Mm. And yet um, there was something, I can't remember the detail, but where Harry's memory was proven, I think of where he was when um, his grandmother died, was very easily fact-checked by someone in the press. You know, was you know his memory was faulty. Should we just not expect books to be fact checked these days? I don't think I don't I don't know what happens in print journalism these days in book publishing. You rely on the author and their them and their, their credibility and their fact checking, and and then you have a legal read and the legal read will uh, highlight. You know, you'll have your own sense of all oh, these are things I need to check. Mm. You'll be you know highlighting all the questions you that you need verification for. You know the issues that you need, all the statements, all the claims, and then you have a lawyer. I guess that's the kind of finest kind of fact checking we'd have in publishing. But the or publishers don't have fact checkers in house. You know, can't afford it. No, know. no. And then I guess the if we just kind of wrap up with the final question, which is about how how to re-engage people with reading when, as we said, we're in the Netflix time, but we're also in the time that, you know, um, there's been books about our declining ability to concentrate, very successful books actually on that. <laughs> how do we, you know, and that our brains are changing in how we actually um, can focus how do you turn people, particularly younger people, onto books? So, what did we see? That Co- Colleen Hoover, and um, she's the new book talk, um, um, you know, um, star. I think she sold one point three million copies of her book, of her latest book. And um, I don't think it's look. First of all, we mourn the death of the book. We were sure the book was going to die. You know, for over a decade, people were talking about the oh, book's alive and well and selling brilliantly. You know, I don't see any and any any um, validity to that anxiety. It is true that people have competition for our attention these days. But, you know, if Harry Potter is delivered, who do, what do we see? We see kids who are apparently distractible and distracted, mesmerised by heads in, you know, noses in their books and can't be prized, prized away from reading. So I think it's about good stories being told that connect with people. So I live in faith. Maybe I'm an optimist. <laughs> Thanks, Louise. Thank um, just remind us of the dates of Adelaide Writers Week. Uh, the 4th to the 9th of March, 2023. You've got to be there. I will be there. I'll be hosting a few sessions. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Louise. You. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts.
This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carr-Katzel. Tom McKendrick is Head of Audio, and Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.